Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. This week's interview is with Dr. Brian Hooper. Brian is a colleague here in Nashville. He is a licensed clinical pastoral therapist, and he's going to tell you all about what that means in the podcast. He is a PsyD, that means he is a doctorate in psychology. Brian is also an ordained Lutheran priest and a gay man. The wisdom that this man possesses is going to knock your socks off. Of all the interviews I've done so far, this is the first I've done with a fellow clinician, and I really think it's going to be worth the time. So without further hesitation or ado, this is my interview with Dr. Brian Hooper. Hello, Brian. Hello, Vanessa. Thank you for joining us today. My privilege. Well, let's dive in. All right. Tell I'm us. Looking forward to this. Me too. For a while. Uh, tell us your story. Tell us how you got into psychotherapy. How did you get here? Sure. Um, well, when I finished up high school and was going into college, I uh, wondered, you know, what I really wanted to do, and I felt torn between going into full-time uh, pastoral ministry, but also uh, clinical counseling. And uh, but I felt a real call on my heart to go into pastoral ministry and so I said well I can always you know go study part-time later and get a degree in psych and maybe go on from there and that's exactly what I did um, and I have a look back and I'm glad that I did both. Tell us about getting your PsyD what was your area of focus? You know it's a it was a general curriculum that met all the uh, standard uh, expectations for those who get that sort of degree, so I didn't focus in one particular area. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose we would talk about the focus being in my clinical experience that followed towards my hours to be licensed. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a clinical pastoral therapist, and that's a kind of a rare degree. Clinical pastoral therapists integrate the insights of clinical and counseling psychology and the wisdom of um, spiritual tradition in order to minimize suffering and maximize wholeness and well-being. Hmm. So I work with a variety of people from, from those who say, you know, I've got a higher power, but I don't think much in terms of theology, or, yeah, I think there's something out there that holds it all together. I work with those folks all the way to people who are very devout practitioners of whatever their religion is, Christian or otherwise. But what I'm looking at is the, the depths of... Uh, meaning that spirituality helps them um, experience and discern and articulate in their lives. In other words, things like, who am I? What is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of relationships? So it really gets down to values in terms of what the kind of work that I do. And so I integrate the, the, the counseling training and the spirituality and religious training in order to do that. Because there's so many routes you can go in this field, what drew you toward clinical pastoral therapy instead of, say, psychology? That's a great question. Um, and uh, it, it was something very practical because I knew that I would bring my deep spiritual values to whatever kind of license I got. If it was clinical social worker or LPC or marriage and family therapist. Um, and, and in California, I could have gone for um, uh, clinical psychologist, except for the practicality that I would have had to have given up my 
church job, which was paying the bills, mm-hmm. in order to be physically in the same place with a licensed uh, clinical psychologist for supervision. Mm-hmm. But the pastoral psychotherapy route allowed me, uh, as some of the other professions do in counseling, mm-hmm. to be able to see people um, when I could see them and then meet with my clinical supervisor to discuss those cases later. Mm -hmm. So that was open to me. I also knew that um, I was going to be needing to leave California at some point because I would need to get elderly parents into affordable assisted living, which wasn't really available in California. Mm -hmm. And the license here in Tennessee was available as a pastoral therapist. Mm -hmm. So I said, that's a Mm no-brainer. So I trained with the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, Mm -hmm. did all my clinical hours there, and I'm really glad that's the route I went Mm -hmm. because it helped me better integrate spirituality at a very basic level um, to w- with um, the insights of, of counseling psychology um, that I don't know that I would have gotten if I had gone the clinical psychologist route. Mm-hmm. And, and I like to tell people this story. It's kind of telling a story on myself, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people would say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I confess to you uh, that there was a time when I sort of condescendingly said silently to myself, well, that's just because you're too lazy to think theologically. (laughs) Okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do know this about myself. Whatever I push up against, Mm -hmm. um, that is, whatever I sort of recoil against, Mm -hmm. there's usually a gift in that for me. Mm So I, I said, well, is there, is there a bottom line spirituality that underlies all healthy expressions of religion that sort of underlies the deep values of all people of goodwill quite apart from religion? Mm. And that was an eye-opener for me. Mm-hmm. Because there's no Christian oxygen or Jewish oxygen or Islamic oxygen or or Buddhist oxygen, there's just oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the oxygen that's underneath our religious understandings? That's great. And what I came to was this, and and, and this isn't on my own, I'm standing on the shoulders of somebody who's standing on the shoulders Mm -hmm. of somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, And for reference, you can start with Lonegren, the philosopher out of Canada, and you can talk about Helminiac, and um, he's got a great little book on spirituality. But anyway, where I came to was this, the spirituality is our deepest connection to our most authentic selves, mm-hmm. to each other, and to a sense of the all, the mm-hmm. ground of being, the divine, the, the unifying force, whatever you want to call it. It's about that connectedness. That was the key to being able to do the deep work with people, no matter what their religion is or is not. Does that make sense? Sure it does. And, you know, one of the questions that popped into my mind a few moments ago as you were talking was I thought, do you believe atheists are at a disadvantage? Because I don't. And I think the reason why I don't is because I find that even people who don't believe in God, even vehemently disavow the notion that there is a God, can still connect to that concept. Absolutely. And the the reason is is because many people who are rebelling against, no, I shouldn't use rebelling, people who are intellectually disagreeing Mm -hmm. with the idea of God are doing so because they have seen 
And what looms large in their mind is the abuses of that, mm-hmm. and they are passionately concerned about mm-hmm. the well-being of other people. Yes. And the funny thing is, that's a deep spiritual value. Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and there's typically an experience there. Either there's no experience with religion, or very often, especially practicing here right. in the South, right. I find experiences that were unsatisfying or really disingenuous. Mm-hmm. with religion and in that way I don't blame them I don't either <laughs> I don't either I would run away from that too yeah I, you know? I, I, I just had somebody recently ask me a prospective new person for my practice about atheists I said I've worked very effectively with atheists 100% because I respect them as human beings yes you know yes and I find that they respect themselves and respect others as human beings yes absolutely oftentimes more than devoutly religious people yes who and this was, I will, again, a little confession. Yeah. Part of the struggle that I had as a gay man in mm-hmm. a denomination that did not accept me, mm-hmm. uh, even while I was serving in it, so mm-hmm. I was pretty closeted, mm-hmm. uh, what I discovered about myself was my faith was in the system of the faith rather than faith in God. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And so what I had to do is go through a crisis of faith. Oh, yeah. Uh, for all of that to come undone, mm-hmm. and, it, and that was my first crisis of faith, I think, <laughs> I to number four. You know, the first crisis of faith was, oh my God, what is happening? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, my world is shattering underneath me. Yep. The second crisis of faith was, oh, I've been this through this before, but I came out okay. The third crisis of faith was, well, this will be interesting. Yeah. Because what I came to was, Whoever, whatever the divine is, it won't be changed by my questions. So I might as well ask. Fair enough. And we don't know. I'm going to compare this a little bit to grief. Sure. Because one of the scariest parts of the grief process is the looming question of when will it end? How long am I going to be in this place? How long am I going to feel this way? That's right. And when I think about spiritual crisis, and I guess I'm on maybe number two or three in my own life, uh, the first one was um, mid-20s, left the faith, left God, you know, left everything I knew and became very agnostic and mm-hmm. then even atheist during some of those years. And I remember the phrase came back to me later on when I had kind of reestablished myself in some sort of faith in God. Some gods need to be left. Yes, absolutely. You have to leave. Somebody once said, we were created in God's image and we have been returning the favor ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And so for me, I'm actually, it made me a much better pastor going through that crisis of faith because it tenderized my heart. It uh, took me out of the realm of being so judgmental. Yes. Um, And And fear-based. And fear-based, right? Yeah. To being gracious. You know, my faith came back together, but in a very different way. Well, and the reason I compared it to grief is because when you're in a crisis of faith, you have no idea how long it's going to last, and it's extremely disorienting. And I think about Fowler stages of faith, Peck's stages Uh of faith, which Uh are integrated with the psychological, and then, of course, Rohr talks about orientation, which is the establishment of the rules, disorientation, which is what we're talking about, which is when you're in a forest and you don't know if any of it's true anymore. And then reorientation, and that does happen, I think, a few times across the lifespan. So if some people listening or those of us out there that have been in crises of faith, sometimes we just need to know this is part of the process. 
You're going right. to come out of this. Just stay in it. Right. We're, we're a little off script here, Brian, but let's go off script. We'll get okay. back to it. But as we always do. As we always do. <laughs> but what lighthouses, what guiding principles would you give people who are in a crisis of faith oh, yeah. so that they stay in the process yeah, and absolutely. see it through? Here's what helped me. I remember the day I looked up towards the heavens because, you know, that's where God is. Uh, <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't know what I believe about anything anymore. And that was actually shortly after being ordained. That was like within my first or second year of ministry. Wow. I said, but this I do know, mm. that if you are the God of love and grace that I have been taught you are, you will not reject me for using the brain that you have given me. So I'm going to go ahead and ask. Yep. I would really encourage people to do that. It's if, if there is a God, using the brain God gave you honors God. Yeah. Uh, if there isn't, it doesn't do you any harm. Right. You have nothing to lose yeah, by thinking. Lose, right? Yeah. And yeah. I similarly, it's interesting because when you have these conversations with people, you realize that everybody's receiving something very universal in a very unique way. Yep. Yep. And I remember during my own crisis and coming through it and coming out of it, there was some realization that unfolded very gently but definitively where I realized that I never had to fear God in the first place and That's I knew right. that I never would again. Right. Once that changed, my theology changed, my interaction with other people changed, certainly my interaction with God changed. Like there is truly an absence of fear. Right. And all of the questions, all of the doubts, but all of the mystery can live right. in that space with no fear that I'm going to get it wrong, I might come to a wrong answer, I'm going to get punished. Like, there's literally none of that. Right. I know that I am living in such a state of love that I'm safe to ask every question and sit with it. And, and that's so beautiful, and that is so true. And the principle underlying that is this. Yeah. Between the, the divine, the questions of God, and ourselves, it, it's not transactional, it's relational. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's not about, quote, getting it right in order to stay connected. Yeah. It's the fact that we are connected. Yes. And therefore, we are liberated to ask the very difficult questions. Yes. And this phrase just comes to mind as you're saying this, that life can be a dialogue. Yes. And with I, the divine. Okay. Well, you know I love words. Yes. Dialogue. Dia logos. Yeah. Dia is the Greek word for through. Mm -hmm. And logos, of course, the word for word. Mm -hmm. So the connection stays, what, through the words wow. that we share with each other. Wow. Yeah. The connection stays through the words. Okay, now, this is a perfect segue for yes. us to talk about talk therapy. Yes. Which absolutely. is a dialogue. Right. <laughs> Very often right. as therapists, right. it's my right. client's and your client's monologue, which right. is fine. Right. That's as it should be because listening is just as active as speaking. Yes. However, talk to us since you love words and you know the roots of so many of these words that we're talking about today. Tell us your definition of psychotherapy. Okay. Let's get into therapy a little bit. Okay. Um, well, you know, uh, again, just starting with the words, uh, it's the first root is psyche, which is either we can use the word soul because soul and psyche are the same thing. And therapuo, which is the Greek verb, I heal. So psychotherapy is about the healing 
of the soul, the healing of um, the, the mind, if you will, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And that happens through dialogos, mm-hmm. <laughs> through dialogue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's a line from Inherit the Wind that I just mm-hmm. sort of um, uh, taken a little bit out of context. And I say one of the things, not all, but one of the things that we do as mm-hmm. therapists is help people think about the things they think about. Right? Mm-hmm. We help them think about how they think about the things they think about. Mm-hmm. And, and why. And why, exactly, right? Mm-hmm. And we are expert in, and growing always in this, not that we know it all, mm-hmm. but we really ought to be experts in recognizing patterns of thought mm-hmm. and patterns of relationship that people get into okay so one of the things that you really cued me into and I'm so grateful for and I've been using it for quite a long time is when people talk about an emotion and it's related to a difficult situation they're in now is to ask when they can remember the earliest experience of that emotion wow and you're right it in this is a Vanessa not a Brian but it's through the feelings to the healings, you know. Um, so part of what we do, I think, is help people um, recognize the unarticulated messages that their emotions are bringing up and help them find the words to talk about that and to get clarity. So they can be not only clear with themselves, but clear with their dialogue partners, right? clear in their inner conversations and clear in their mutual conversations. Wow. We'll edit this, but my brain's going in three or four different directions right now. I've never heard that described that way. And by the way, that question that you learned from me, I learned from psychiatrist Jill DeBona. Oh, okay. Tell me about the first time you heard that or you felt that. it's so, interesting what we don't learn from the books in our academic studies, right? Well, and to your point that we're all standing on each other's shoulders. <laughs> right, right, you know, this yeah. is this is a community right. of people who are interested in exactly what you're talking about. So gaining clarity within mm-hmm. and therefore able to articulate with clarity with others. Mm-hmm. Improvement of relationships all around. Tell us a little bit about either what you've experienced or what you've witnessed or both about the journey of becoming whole. You know, we've talked about religion so many times, but one of the words that I've learned from you and I've adopted in a very regular way is the word whole making. Mm -hmm. You've said that a lot about Mm -hmm. many different things that we've Mm -hmm. talked about that nurturing helpful healing experiences, very often you will use whole making synonymously. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. You know, people don't come to us because they're feeling great. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fact. Right? They come to us because they're hurting, they're feeling wounded. Mm -hmm. And we have to go in a skillful way that paces their ability to tolerate the discomfort into those places, those wounds, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But but that's how we get to wholeness. Mm -hmm. That's how we get to a greater sense of, of healing is to go into those places and explore those places with people. And, and, and in, my, in my tradition as a Christian, I, I have said to people for whom it's appropriate to hear this, you know, there's no Easter Sunday without a Good Friday. Mm-hmm. It's often the case that something, some pattern, some thought 
has to die mm -hmm. in order for people to step into a new life. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so homemaking helps them, is really about helping people to be the most whole version of themselves that they can be. Mm -hmm. And when they begin to achieve that, mm -hmm. then they can recognize more of where they want to go to achieve more of that because it's a journey, mm -hmm. right? It's There is no arrival with this stuff. It's mm -hmm. a process. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I often tell people, you know, we fix our, our focus on this goal and that goal and the next goal. And that's fine, but most of our lives are not spent crossing thresholds. Most of our lives are spent on the journey from point A to point B and then point B to point C. That's right. So the call is to be awake mm -hmm. on the journey. Yeah. Right? Awake on the journey. Mm -hmm. Which, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> Can so I many just, that, yeah. that, that reminds me. Of, so I want to talk about the four pillars of spirituality. Yeah. yeah. yeah so the first pillar is to be awake. Awake to what's going on in you between you and anyone else at any time, and around you in the world, to be awake. The second pillar is to be thoughtful, and I like to hyphenate that. That is to be full of thought, curiosity, wonder about the things you're awake to, rather than jumping to a, um, a reactionary response, right? Or a conclusion. Just be curious. <laughs> awake, thoughtful, and then reasonable to ask mm. myself is my thinking following the canons of logic or Great question or am i just thinking emotively am i allowing my feelings which are very important but am i allowing them to override my rational thought so awake thoughtful reasonable and then response able in other words choosing a response that enables, and now we're going to come full circle, choosing a response that enables wholeness and well-being in myself, in the persons that I'm in dialogue with, and the world around me. So, <laughs> Awake, thoughtful, reasonable, responsible. Right. Response-able. Right. This is the path of wholeness. Yes. Is embodying these things. Yes. You know, as you were talking, I thought to myself, who goes to a movie theater, watches the first five minutes of a movie and wants to see the end? The whole journey is, the yeah. whole enjoyment, let me say that is, again, yeah. the whole enjoyment of the film is the process of, of it unfolding. Yes. And I think in our lives, we want the end of the movie. Not necessarily the end of our lives, but we just want to know how, we want to be in the outcome. And this is something right. you and I have talked about a lot that I've learned from you as well, is just staying in the process, staying out of the outcome. Amen. And this is the process. Awake, thoughtful, reasonable. And I love what you said. I wrote it down. Is my thinking following the canons of logic or am I following my feelings? Right. Boy. Whew. Right. In psychotherapy right now, it is my belief that to a large degree, we have lost our way in this. I agree. Say more. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I go back to um, M. Scott Peck's opening line in his book, The Road Less Traveled. Life is difficult. That's right. Life is difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, Famous line. You know, and what I got from 
good parents growing up was you don't always get what you want. <laughs> and so I think our task is not to try to convince the, the people that we see that the world around them really owes them a change in order to conform with their every desire, but rather our task is to help them adjust to a challenging world and then support them in making the changes that they reasonably can work to make. Brilliant. And when we are living in the reality, and good parents, good Hooper parents, that we don't get what we want, it pushes us to be creative, Yes. Resourceful. That's right. It draws us into places of contentment when we grieve what we cannot have. Right. That's where all the richness is. It's in the struggle, actually. And who we are on the other side of it is generally wiser, more mature. That's right. That's right. (laughs) It's worth it. I love the word you use, contentment. Mm. Okay. When when we can grapple with reality, face it in a creative, resourceful kind of way, it helps us experience contentment versus discontentment, Mm -hmm. okay? I I tell people all the time, listen, I'm not fully satisfied with my life. There are things that I want I don't have relationally, um, tangibly, Mm -hmm. but I am almost always content. And here's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. And for the listeners, imagine just grabbing a coffee mug and thinking about how you would drink coffee without a mug to put it in. It would be discontented. (laughs) Right? That's right. Okay, so I I often, I will hold up, because I always got a coffee mug in my office, that's my little addiction. I'll hold up the mug and I will take the other hand and put all of my fingers together and then say, you know, this is you. Now imagine you contained, contained Mm -hmm. in the cup. Mm -hmm. And now I take the cup and I just toss it out. What happens? You feel scattered. Mm-hmm. You feel as they used to say, it's sixes and nines, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You have a sense that I don't know where my boundaries are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, gratitude with contentment mm. is a real blessing. Gratitude with contentment, and you don't need a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to edit this out because we shouldn't be putting ourselves out of business. <laughs> I'd love it if we go out of business for the sake of humanity. But yeah, that's it. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about the gap between expectations and experience in therapy and that what fills that gap is very often disappointment Yes. or therefore anxiety, worry. What if our expectations went right back to the first and opening line of The Road Less Traveled? What if that was the expectation? Life Life is difficult. Uh It's already difficult. Uh When I was in my 20s, my first therapist, God bless that woman, in New York City, I was such a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, she was my container in a lot of ways. That woman held me together. But I remember she said once, and I was probably in that entitled... 20s, early 2000s, what's wrong with the world? Yes. You know, yes. which yes. is developmentally right on track. Right, exactly. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Vanessa, in the Eastern faith, faiths, in the Eastern traditions, the understanding, the assumption is that life is terribly difficult. And so when it's not, we show gratitude. In the West, we assume that life should be wonderful all the time. Yes. Who do you think is happier? 
Yes, absolutely. I was 23 years old. <laughs> I've never forgotten those words, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, good for her. That's really wise. It was, and she was very wise. She was a really good therapist for me at that time. I think about her sometimes. I wonder where she is. So you've used alchemy as I a have. metaphor. It's on it. your website, yes. which we'll get to, but drbrianhooper.com. Tell us about that. Yeah. The therapeutic process and alchemy. Sure. Oh, um, it's such a rich myth. You know, mm-hmm. I hardly know where to start, but just a, just a little bit of background. So alchemy is the precursor to our more modern day chemistry. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, the, the ancient practice of trying to transform uh, substances. So sometimes plant matter to get to the very essence of the plant matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably what people most think of when they think of alchemy is the attempt to transform lead into gold, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And when I think about what psychotherapy is about, people bring us their lead and we help them transmutate that lead into gold, mm. right? Mm-hmm. It's finding the light that lives kept bound up in the shadow. And so where, we, where we're willing to go and notice the lead, it usually points to something that's legitimate, a legitimate need, but we're mishandling it. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I have worked with many addicts and they come to me because what happens? Their life goes uh, down in flames and up in smoke. Mm -hmm. Well, the first stage in alchemical transformation of plants is taking the plant and uh, incinerating it Mm -hmm. until all you have left is a very fine ash, right? So the phoenix is an alchemical sign, you know, consumed in the fire and yet born out of the fire. Rising from the ashes. Yeah, rising from the ashes. So um, there is nothing that's wasted. You know, the the universe is is energetic, right? And the energy just gets transformed. It never goes away. And so everything in our lives can, even what seems destructive, can be reclaimed, redeemed, repurposed to become constructive. You're talking about concepts that are truly universal. Yes. Light and darkness, transmutation, the idea that nothing is wasted, that energy simply transforms. And these are the concepts, just to sort of bring us back to those opening moments of our dialogue here today, Yes. that these are the concepts, these are the universal realities that religion is trying to draw us into. It's trying to give us a real embodied awareness of these things so that we can live. Right. Full stop. So that we can live. So we can live, right. (laughs) Yeah, so we can live with joy and contentment and purpose and meaning. But that is to live. Right, exactly. And the word religion from the Latin religio, Mm -hmm. you can even hear the word ligament Mm -hmm. in that word, right? Yeah. Yeah. So religio, religion, is intended to reconnect us to our most authentic selves, to each other, and to a sense of the all. 
Where he gets it right, it does that. Where he gets it wrong, it binds us up. Yes. Encumbers us. Yes. It's a straitjacket. It connects us to fear. Right. Right. Yes. But it's really to connect us in, in its best expressions to faith. You know, coming back to alchemy, yeah. the whole idea that nothing is wasted, that's so hopeful. Because so often people come to therapeutic work or they sit in their own darkness in their lives and think, I've wasted years, I've wasted relationships, I've wasted opportunities. You know, there's such a sense of if the output or the outcome of my life doesn't fit some rubric of shiny, marvelous, you know... Bigger, better, higher, faster, brighter, quicker. Yes, if it doesn't fit that, then it was a waste. And I think so much of our job is finding the preciousness or helping the client find and hold and understand and really believe in the preciousness of their own life. Absolutely. That no, no breath in you has right. ever been wasted. Right. You wouldn't be sitting in this consultation room with one of us if there wasn't something that brought you here. And even if it was devastating, it brought you to this place of now transformation, the beginning of transformation. Yes. Right. So, crisis, right? Let's talk about it. The crises that we go through are excruciating. Mm-hmm. And the word excruciating and is rooted in the word cross, right? Mm. The crux. Mm. But the excruciating things bring us to the crux mm-hmm. of what's going on inside, right? So... The, the, the person who is reaching for alcohol or drugs or inappropriate sex or gambling too much or they've got a shopping addiction, they are all trying to get legitimate needs met mm-hmm. in ways that are not helpful. What they're looking for is a change of interior state, mm-hmm. which is legit, mm-hmm. And somehow they never learn how to achieve that interior state, so they've used things on the outside to get it. But the desire for that change and in the interior state, a state of being contented, is a legitimate desire and need, and we get to help them find ways to experience that that are constructive rather than destructive. And the crisis moment is often what brings people, opens them up to that possibility. Talk to us a little bit. You mentioned this earlier, but you mentioned the word shadow. Yeah. And for those of us that do depth work, psychodynamic, coming out of the psychoanalytic tradition, and spiritually integrated, we work in, whether or not we speak this out loud, we're working in the shadows. All the time. All day long. Right. And... Talk to us about that. How would you define shadow work for people who are right, listening? Right. How would you explain the path of shadow work? How to engage one's own shadow? Yeah, sure. So the shadow contains not only things that um, we might be loath to talk about, mm-hmm. right? But the shadow also contains legitimate needs and desires that somehow we have been forbidden to explore. Mm 
Mm. So, for instance, uh, I remember my mom telling me at one point in time when she was a little girl. Now she she was of the same era as Shirley Temple, and have a treasured picture of her as a child that looks like she's Shirley Temple, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> um, but she was told as a child that she really couldn't even get a tune on the radio, okay? Mm -hmm. She couldn't sing. And I, I think she would, um, she would have loved to enjoy the limelight as an entertainment person, I think. Mm -hmm. She followed the movie magazines when those things were popular and all of that. So I, I, I wish that at some point she could have had somebody say, come, let's do music together. You don't have to be good at it, but let's just bring that out of the shadow, right? But instead, you know, that sort of thing creates in people a shame. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a shame often comes out of the shadow, right? Mm -hmm. Things that have shamed us. I think it was Jung, maybe, who said that the parts of us that develop without enough light are therefore the parts of us that grow up in the shadows. And um, the parts of us that are yeah. survivor parts, aggressive parts, but what you're... He said, yeah, and he said, and this goes along with that, that um, the task is to bring out the... Um, I'm, now, this is a paraphrase, okay? Yeah, of course. Um, but essentially to bring out the unexplored part, otherwise we will continue to do the same things again and we'll call it fate. Wow. Yeah. And so it is that the fate then begins to dictate how we live. It, it dominates us mm -hmm. simply because it's been unexplored. Mm -hmm. Well, that gets into the importance of self-knowledge. Right. Curiosity. Right. Living thought fully, being curious about oneself and not avoidant. Right. And that forms the content of the therapeutic hour, doesn't it? Absolutely. People will come in and they'll say, I don't, you know, I really don't have anything and I, to talk about. And I do encourage people. I give them all a little notebook when they come and ask them to take notes in session and make notes afterwards and things that come up they want to talk about. But sometimes they walk in and they go, oh, I left my notebook at home and I don't remember or I didn't write anything up. But somehow, magically, the hour gets filled up and not mm -hmm. just with idle chatter. Because mm -mm. mm -mm. anything, you, that you can enter into the psyche from any point that you bring up. Mm -hmm. There's so many entrance points. Mm -hmm. And everything is connected to everything, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which So in, in alchemy, mm -hmm. we talk about as above, so below, as below, so above. Mm -hmm. if, the universe, if in the universe we say everything is connected, mm -hmm. then our lives become a metaphor of that as well, or a minor version of that, a constellation of that, the interior world, the interior universe. Everything in our lives is connected to everything else. Your spirituality is connected to your sexuality, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And when that's all coherent and makes sense, it becomes sacramental mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm -hmm. But when it's disconnected, these things are not recognized, then we think fate's controlling everything, mm -hmm. and it's disconnected. Mm -hmm. yeah. This, you know, we jotted down some questions, and we're we're all over, which is great. But we are sort of moving along a theme. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing? It's mystery. Yes. And 
And again, with the word mystery, you know, when we think of mystery in the United States, we think of things like an Agatha Christie novel that's written with the sole purpose of keeping you in the dark. <laughs> Who done it? I don't know. This chapter I thought so-and-so did it. Now this chapter I think. But the Greek word under mystery is mysterion, and it means a secret that is being unfolded or revealed. Mm -hmm. It is not in darkening, it is enlightening. Mm -hmm. So the deeper we go in the darkness, the more enlightened we become. Mm -hmm. How do you work with clients that are seemingly utterly uncurious about uh, themselves? Well, I will tell you, they're the most challenging people. Right? I would agree. Right? Yeah. My task is to invite curiosity, I think, in the questions that I ask, to model for them mm -hmm. how to inquire of themselves, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, again, thank you, it's, um, it has to do with asking them to look at their emotions. You know, what I've discovered is if I ask people to name emotion words, feeling words, they can name about seven and they run out of words. Mm -hmm. So I, I do this, and I think you do too, is to give them a list of emotion words, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But somebody will say, I'm just really angry at my husband. I'll say, oh, okay. What's the feeling behind the anger? Because anger is always secondary. And what's, what's the, well, I don't know. I just feel angry. Okay, well, let's talk about what happened. Well, he did this and he didn't ask about me. Ah, what's the feeling that we, what's the name for the feeling that we have when we believe we've not been consulted? I feel overlooked. I feel insignificant. I feel unimportant. I feel disvalued. Okay. <laughs> when did you first feel that? It's mm -hmm. exactly what I had with my father. Mm -hmm. So you married your father. I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> jump there that quickly. But, <laughs> but you're thinking. But I'm thinking, I'm wondering. You're what thinking you, it. Okay, so but the good news there is if both people work on this stuff, mm -hmm. then healing can happen. Mm -hmm. And it can actually be a good thing, and deep needs can be met. Yeah. Right? Which leads us to a quality of character, because the theme that you're hearing is mystery, and the way that I was going to phrase that, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I hear that theme. The way that I was going to phrase that was the engagement on the part of the therapist, but really on the part of each other in the interior world of the yes. other, which yeah. is mystery. Right. And there are qualities that we encounter that open up our lives and our psyches, our souls to one another in a way that is whole-making. Right. One being the engagement of crisis. Yes. One being awake, thoughtful, reasonable, responsible, and also humble. Yes. I don't think we talk about humility mm. at all in mm. current society. It's not valued. It's not. <laughs> I mean, I think we value the opposite, but mostly if you have an interaction with pure arrogance and pride, it's unsettling. Yes. But we don't talk about what humility is. It's, it's disconnecting, isn't it? Pure arrogance and pride. It is disconnecting, and humility is connecting among other things but we don't talk about it from a mental health perspective right. because i think it gets sort of 
corralled over there in religious language? Well, and also a lot of, you know, popular mental health stuff is all about, it's been focused on self-esteem, which I do believe is important. Yes, humanism, sure. But, you know, self-esteem ultimately is the reputation we build with ourselves. Yeah. It's not just a a thing that floats out of the ether. Right. Right? Right. Uh, Humility, you know, from, from the... The word humus or dust or ground, right? Dirt. Dirt. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's to be a grounded person. It's mm-hmm. to be humble. Mm-hmm. It's not about being groveling. Mm-hmm. It's just having your feet on the ground. Yes. I remember maybe in my 20s. I remember this moment where I had like a light bulb that went off in my in my mind and really in my soul. And I realized that to be humble is simply to be honest. Yes. That's it. Yes. Which is another way of saying grounded. Right. Right? You are neither too big, which right. is to be proud, nor are you too small. Yeah. And I don't know what that word is, except that I think it's inhumane. To be humble, to me, is to be right-sized. To have right. an honest relationship with yourself, and yeah. from that honesty, to have an honest relationship with other people. Right? Neither performative nor diminishing. Right. Exactly. And why aren't we talking about that in, in its connection to mental health? Because that forms the basis for satisfying relationships. <laughs> well, I think we live in an era where the, one of the prevailing attitudes that I'm very concerned about today is an attitude which is looking to be offended or of looking for offense in a multitude of different interactions. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's healthy. Mm-mm. I think it's best to speak well of our neighbors, put the best construction on everything, mm-hmm. expect the best, even mm-hmm. while we're protecting ourselves from the worst. Don't be naive. Mm-hmm. But be gracious in your interactions with others. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The presumption of good intent. You know, we've spent a lot of time over the last few years in the mental health community talking about the difference between intent and impact. And I think that people have become so rooted, narcissistically, honestly, in the impact of other people's actions that they've completely forgotten the intent. And most of the time, we may be careless, we may be crude, we can even be rude, but our intent is typically not to harm one another. I believe that. I do too. And I think that's the graciousness with which we can operate and engage with one another where we're not in the oppression Olympics where we're constantly looking for ways that people have somehow misseen us or, um, you know, misunderstood us or mislabeled us. I mean, I just don't see a world going down that road as a road of mental health. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to walk on eggshells all the time. It's not tenable. It's not sustainable. And it's not... To your point, reasonable. Right. No one is going to be comprehensively non-offensive all the time. Right, right, right. And, and in that world, <clears throat> and here's my question, where is trust? Where is trust? If everything is going through the lens of how I interpret it and what it means to me, then I never, ever, ever trust you. And I never give you the grace to say... You didn't mean that, or that was a little off, but it's right. fine. That's what relationship is about. Relationship is actually about grace and trust. Yes. So as we wrap up here, we've talked about 
many things today, talk a little bit about the role of self-awareness in transformation. Mm, Let's jump yeah. to that and then we'll end on that note. Yeah, I think it's key. I mean, I, I look back to the Greek philosophers, know thyself. Mm. Number two is that the unexamined life is not worth living. <laughs> Funny story about that. I had just started reading Socrates. Yep. That's Socrates. And I yep. was the first person in my family, my family of origin, who ever went to therapy. And I was mocked and ridiculed. And I was sitting out back on a patio at one of my family members' houses. And one of the family members, I won't say who, stood up and barked at me and said, Vanessa, I don't want to think about my life. I just want to live it. Mocking, shaming me for going mm -hmm. to therapy. And I remember quietly, I had just read that, and I was probably 24, 25, 26. And I remember just quietly thinking in my head, Brian, a life unconsidered is not worth living. And I had so much soothing in my spirit because I thought somehow I know what you're saying yeah. right now is coming from passion but I'm going to prioritize the words of Socrates that have lasted millennia mm -hmm. over that sentiment that you mm -hmm. just spat yeah. at me right yes. <laughs> and yes, so we yes. can take comfort knowing that the work we're doing is of ancient origin yes absolutely well all cultures in all places at all times have had you know various archetypal images right so the archetype of of royalty and the archetype of service and and uh, the archetype of the priest and the, the warrior and the warrior right mm -hmm. yeah the the king and or queen and the archetype of the healer mm -hmm. you know this morning i had the privilege um, to preach and preside at my Lutheran parish in the absence of the pastor, I talked about the wounded healer mm. that is the image of Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mentioned Nowen in mm -hmm. that. The work we do, we do because we recognize our own wounds mm -hmm. and we continue to attend to those with our own therapists. Mm -hmm. And that's an ancient process. It's... Um, you know, I often say I'm, I'm grateful for the academic part of my education, but honestly, where I have learned the most is being in my therapy. Mm -hmm. I know for you, being in your therapy mm -hmm. and apprenticing yes. under other healers. Yes. Um, it's, it's art and science what we do, but honest to goodness, if I had to lean one way or the other, I'd lean on art. It's art. Yeah, it's art. Let's wrap up there. All right. Brian, thank, thank you. you. Oh, Vanessa, thank you. What a, what gift. a privilege. We could have talked for three more hours. And we will. We will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. Everybody, thanks so much for listening. This conversation was enlightening to me. Brian is a well of knowledge. If you understand the Enneagram, he's a five on the Enneagram. You could know that just by listening to him talk. He's just a well of knowledge and a well of wisdom. But more than that, he is just a well of grace. So I hope that you walk away with a greater understanding of yourself, your own process, your own transformation. I know I did. Brian's a real mentor to me. So thanks for sharing this time with us today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for engaging this. As always, please share this podcast. And if you would, pop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review if you think it's worth it. That always improves our ratings and we appreciate that. 
Friends, till next week, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.